Welcome to the Wake the F Up podcast with Alex and Jamie, where we talk about living consciously and helping people uncover their essential self so they can stop sleepwalking through life. On this podcast, we're having raw conversations about difficult topics. Our goal is to create a safe space where our guests can talk about real problems and issues and how they decided to wake the F up and become mindfulness experts through their own emotional healing journey. Hi, welcome to Wake the F Up Podcast. My name is Alex Long, and I am here today with our guest, Dr. Sonia Maholtra. Welcome, Dr. Maholtra. We are so excited to have you. She is the Associate Section Chief of General Internal Medicine, Geriatrics, and Palliative Medicine at Tulane School of Medicine. Dr. Maholtra has been building palliative medicine programs in the New Orleans region since 2015, and our personal relationship is she was my first husband, Carl's palliative care doctor. So welcome, Dr. Maltra. We have spent so much time together, but it's been a minute since I've seen you and I'm so honored to have you on this program. Great, thank you so much for having me, Alex. It's it's always a privilege and honor to be with you and speak with you. So I am so excited because this month um, in September, we're highlighting in, in wake uh, wellness grief. And as a palliative care doctor, we met, hmm, I guess it was probably 2017. Carl was diagnosed in 2014, but he had a pretty severe diagnosis and severe case of pain that, that came on pretty quickly um, associated with his cancer return. So I think his return was, his recurrence may have been in 16, something like that. So I wanted to talk a little bit today just about your job. Like, what do you do? How did you come into this um, type of medicine? And maybe explain to the listeners who may not, I've had to experience palliative care, um, what it is you do for a living. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's a great thing to start off with. I, I love my field. I just want to say that first and foremost. And I love the patients and families that I have the privilege uh, to be with during some really intense times. Palliative medicine truly is the care of anyone living with a serious illness. And whether that serious illness is cancer, whether it's, you know, heart failure, lung disease, chronic lung disease, chronic liver disease, we are there to help with the symptoms that affect the quality of life, things like pain, anxiety, depression, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, as well as the communication around the serious illness and also creating a platform for emotional support. And so many palliative medicine teams have psychologists and social workers who are doing therapy. Um, We actually have a psychiatrist at University Medical Center, uh, New Orleans, who helps with medication management. Most, more often than not, people think that palliative medicine is end of life care or hospice care. And surely that is something that we can help to manage when the time is right for that. And yet we wanna see patients much more upstream when they're struggling with their serious illnesses so that we can be, I, I don't like to say an extra layer of support. Sometimes we are the layer of support for patients, their families and their caregivers um, to be able to provide sort of holistic, multidisciplinary care. And so, you know, we we are a team, meaning there are physicians, there are nurses, pharmacists, chaplains, social workers, and nurse practitioners and physician assistants that work alongside each other to provide this level of care. Yeah, it's such an important thing. And I think I remember when it was suggested that we seek out palliative care for us. Um, I was it as a a uh, person that had previously worked in the medical world, I was really scared. It made me think that that immediately meant we were at death's doorstep. Now, 
we were not at death's doorstep, although probably the prognosis was like, you know, one month, three months to live um, on repeat for Carl. But I, I wanted to bring you on for lots of resources for people out there suffering from chronic illnesses, for my caregivers who might be tuning into the podcast. I tend to gravitate towards a lot of um, people in the medical community, people um, who are fighting illnesses and also widows, of course. So death is unavoidable for all of us. Um, illness is something that a lot of us deal with. And I felt like when I'm, when we were lucky enough to fall in your arms, because we were lucky enough to fall in your arms, uh, you actually were the reason I think people always ask me like, how did Carl survive as long as he did? And I really attribute a lot of it to his positive mental attitude. But more importantly, I actually think the care that you gave us in that time or gave him at that time, and it was really an us because you actually worked with the whole family. Um, it really allowed him to to hit his bucket list and really accomplish some of these, like he did the tricentennial dinner at Antoine's. Um, he did a lot of big things, opened two restaurants, all while fighting stage four cancer with yeah, just three months to live. That diagnosis, I mean, prognosis was given to us multiple times. Um, and so I think it's so important that if we can, you know, inform our listeners what, what palliative medicine actually does for people who are in chronic diseases, it's, it really actually gives you, um, the ability to live more fully. And you said that from like day one when I met you, which was really powerful to me. You also were a practitioner, one of the first practitioners I think I've ever met that you seem to, and maybe correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but you seem to be guiding Carl's care from a mindfulness perspective. And I, that was very unique to me at the time. I was like, you know, doing Pilates and yoga and uh, launching my company. And I was like, I've never heard a physician who approaches, you know, her care platform or the way that you're handling these, you know, very difficult situations from mindfulness was really what you were preaching, which I was like, this is amazing. So maybe you want to talk to me a little bit about how you have found mind mindfulness in your world and like what that looks like for you as a practitioner in, in grief scenarios. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think one of the things is we have to stress that Patients and individuals who are living with serious illness truly are living with their serious illness. They're not dying from it. There yes. will be a point when they die from it. And, and that's okay. We'll help to manage that when that stage comes. And yet how to get people to live because everyone in this life has anxiety, has moments of depression, has struggles. If, if we think that any one person has it all going for them, we're kidding ourselves. And so yeah. how to deal with the anxieties the moments of depression, those types of things that happen in our daily lives. And certainly when working with a, a serious chronic illness and when you are serving as the caregiver of a person with a serious chronic illness, also to stay in that mindfulness reign. I will say that the reason I went into this field is because I took care of a baby when I was a first year intern. And, and at that point, I thought I wanted to be you know, one of these fancy doctors who took care of the kidneys. I thought I wanted to do adult and pediatric nephrology. Mm -hmm. And this baby had, was uh, the baby of two 16-year-old parents or, you know, somewhere close in that range who lovingly made the decision that they didn't want any further interventions to be done. This baby was not going to survive and was probably suffering through many of the interventions and made the decision to stop you know, treatments that were prolonging the suffering process. I don't think they were at a place where they could be there with the baby as uh, the baby died. And so I held that baby in my arms uh, until the baby died in my arms. 
And for me, that was a life-changing moment and a career-changing moment because I knew there was just so much more that we could provide even in this most intimate phase of life. And I say intimate because death and dying is just as intimate as, as bringing life into the world. And yeah. I've had the privilege and honor of being witness to that for so many thousands of people and also for my own father who died right in front of me and in an ICU, unfortunately. And yet, you know, I bore witness to that. And I think that there is something that has to be said about us being accepting of death and dying. And so when you ask, how do I incorporate mindfulness into my own life? I always tell people that I don't feel like I've given the field as much as it's given me. And I yeah. feel like my field has taught me to make use of every moment that's given to us because we don't know when it's our last minute. We don't know when that day will come when we will have to bear witness to someone suffering um, to their end of life or when we'll be diagnosed with something that will really affect us. And so I try to make use of every moment and try to really ground myself in, in this present moment. And how do I make it better? And if not better, how do I just sit there with it? And so some days are really bad where you just have to sit with them and knowing that, you know, the next hour, the next couple of hours, the next day is going to be different and, and it's okay to allow it to be different. And it might be better. It might be worse. And being okay with that uncertainty is something I've had to really train my mind to be more cognizant of. Well, these are such valuable things to say. And this is, I mean, it's honestly why I've created this company. So it sometimes feels probably like it feels to be a palliative care doctor to be a widow is like, I have learned so much from death that I always am wanting to share these concepts that I've learned from death that I think are applicable to our daily living. And I think what you just said is so it's sitting in, sitting in the uncomfortable place that we actually are not in control all the way is really, really one of the probably gifts that I learned from cancer, which is we have no control over anything but our reactions and how we, we choose to um, handle a situation and respond from it. And I was just, I was thinking about like, what are some of the, I mean, you just said so much, but what are, what do you think is the biggest takeaway that you have being able to be witness to serious illness and death every day for yourself and for your family? Like, what do you get to take home and apply to your life that you think has really made a huge impact on you? That's a great question. I would say that, you know, I am a part of a two physician family. My husband is a child and adult psychiatrist. And despite our hectic schedules, we make sure to have dinner every night as a family. Those moments that are perceivably small to the world are huge for us because we can cultivate a sense of gratitude at the dinner table. So we go around the table, you know, naming one thing we're grateful for, and we try to make great use of the memories we're able to have. And so it's not about taking big fancy vacations for us, at least for some individuals, that's okay. In our minds and in our family life, it's about cultivating those small moments around the dinner table or the small weekend trips we take or the friends we go visit or the family we go visit, making sure that we as a unit are strong and checking in on each other. And also making sure that despite what's going on in the world, because there's a lot of things going on in the world. Yeah. There's a lot of things that people internalize from the world, knowing that we've got our tight knit unit to turn to when things are going 
you know, horrendously in the world, for lack of better words, and, and being able to count on one another and keep each other uplifted. I am not an idealist by any stretch of the imagination. I like to consider myself a realist. And so it's dealing with the ups of life as well as the downs of life and being able to talk through them as a family is very important. And I, I would be amiss if I didn't give credit to my own husband, you know, who has through his training uh, learned so much and then taught me so much that there's a humanism that we have forgotten as a society, that each and every one of us is bearing witness to a lot of struggles. And if we're not right now, at some point we will. And how do we be kind and humanistic to one another despite the pressures of society, the pressures to be at work on time, the pressures of you know, getting your kids. And I think for a lot of mothers out there, the pressures of being that quote unquote perfect mom, it doesn't yeah. exist. And we have to be okay with it. And we have to be willing to be kind and loving to one another knowing that there's a greater world of suffering and how do we work together to address that? I love this. And I love your origin story. I don't know that I ever knew about the baby and about how you came into this. And I don't know, it makes my heart really warm. Um, in the process of Carl dying, he was his pain was so out of control. And one of the things I think it's a raw thing to talk about, but if anyone's out there suffering, one of the things that palliative medicine did for us, which you did for Carl was, you actually managed his medications. So if you're in disease states, you tend to be on multiple prescriptions and, and those prescriptions, we often would see our oncologist. And then we'd have to see a specialist who is dealing with, you know, maybe the kidney or you, like, you're going to the nephrologist and then you go to this other spe subspecialist. And then all these subspecialties don't always communicate together all the time. And in that, like, I felt like you got our MD Anderson doctors, our Oshner doctors, you know, our general practitioners, all the people together, and you kind of created a more cohesive uh, medical management situation where the medicine wasn't working against itself. Like I felt like a lot of things people were putting him on were working against each other and making him so um, snowed out would be like the, the way I'd put it. And you were, he actually really could function on a much better level. So pharmacology inter interaction of medications is a big part of what you do, huh? Absolutely. I think, you know, being able to balance out the medications that patients who are who have chronic illnesses are on a lot of medications and being able to streamline them, because if it's confusing for me as a physician, I can't even imagine what it's like for a patient or their family. And so being able to streamline that also being able to streamline the communication, because oftentimes doctors say completely separate things and how to bring them back together on one scale, on one cohesive scale, so we're all saying the same thing is vitally important for patients and families because in order to make good decisions for the next stages of your illness or your trajectory, you have to have the information in a cohesive way. And so I think that's one of the things that a palliative medicine team can do. So important. And I actually think the way that medicine is, is often ran can be very um, the opposite of that, right? Like I think communication can get dropped a lot. We're all very busy. The resources are very thin in hospitals and everybody's doing their best to do the best job with acute medicine. But it, you know, one of the things that I thought another really powerful thing that I picked up with uh, working with you was that you, you were really treating the body as a whole. And that was also super unique where I'm like, medicine has gotten so specialized that I feel like sometimes if we forget that it's a system working together and like, we have to look at the whole if we're in, if we're going to treat the body in, in the right way. And I, I, I love that that was your approach. And 
I wasn't, have you always been in that, that mindset or that, is that just like maybe the subspecialty of, of palliative medicine that looks at the whole? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think I had this much sort of sense of whole body medicine and really that the mind is very powerful. And if we, if we train the mind, you know, to respond to pain and to respond to every down that we experience in life, it is a pretty powerful organ that will exactly do what it's intended to do because it is that um, critically, you know, important and also that advanced as an organ system. And so how to retrain the mind is important and especially for patients and families living with a serious illness, how to train their mind on getting through what is important to them. Thinking through also, what do those moments look like? What do you want to experience with whatever time you have? And then also, what is acceptable to your body? And it, it's a real challenge for me to train my trainees, my medical students, residents, fellows, because they often ask families, what do you want? And every person wants to live and they want to live as best as possible. And yet, is it possible to live as long as possible with a serious illness if you have a diagnosis of metastatic cancer? And I think that honesty that doctors need to have needs to be there. And we need to reframe the words we use for, away from want to what is acceptable. And what are you hoping to achieve? What are your worries? And you know, if I were to tell you something different, would you change your expectations of life? And how would you change yeah. those expectations? So being able to have a conversation, which I think the medical system has strapped many of us doctors with such little time that we're not able to have effective communication uh, and conversations with our patients and their families. Well, and I think that, you know, a lot of the doctors who I, I of course, was ferociously asking for timelines all the time, because I, I, as a young mother, was trying to wrap my mind around, like, how do we make right decisions on, you know, our businesses, our time, all these valuable resources that we had limited quantity of time left with. I, I felt like very difficult to make any choices um, without true understanding of where we were in the disease process. And I think a lot of times people did, Carl also kind of unicorned out of a lot of the timelines that I think were set for him. I, I really attribute that to your care. I really, really do. I think she was, you know, the listeners out there, she was so wonderful. You came to our house and like added yourself on my hospice team as the lead because his pain was so out of control that um, they were able to handle it. But I would say when we went to get the feeding tube, I had to go back into a hospital and it was a real eye opener for me, what you were doing for us versus what the hospital systems limit, I guess the limitations of how much pain medication or medication they could to get him comfortable. He was above what they were able to provide. And that was an eye opener where I was like, whoa, so you can go to the hospital and not be able to receive the amount of medication you need with, um, you know, metastatic cancer. Right. You got to get, you got to go out of the house or go to palliation to get this kind of order written. And it was really scary. Cause I, I still think in that window of time, when he got the feeding tube put in, the medication came to such a low level of pain control that he got so exhausted that there was no turning back from that, that pushed him. And that's what you're saying. So when you have a timeline that is, you know, out of your control, how can you control to keep yourself in the, in the highest state you can of, of pain control, of mental control, of physical symptomology in order to live your full life. And I think the families and caregivers get really petrified because when they hit a period of like, 
taking them out of control pain, they, they don't have a lot of reserve to keep fighting. And so those fragilities can really make you feel like this bad decision pushed the person towards death when we're, we're going that way anyway. But it's really hard as a, as a loved one to not like get upset in those environments. So I felt like you really helped us a lot to stay in balance. And um, I was super grateful for your continued support. So I just well, wanted to- you, you were an amazing, amazing caregiver. And I, oh. I, I don't think that, you know, you should ever undersell that. Um, you did a phenomenal job. And I think for many of my caregivers out there, it is a hard struggle. And I think that it's hard to hear bad news. And I name it just what it is. It is bad news. And yet, what can we do? The true sort of definition of mindfulness is being in the moment and being present. And, and sometimes that means bearing witness to some of that bad news. And so how do we cultivate a mindset that, yes, with the good, we're going to have bad? And how do we transform those energies? And I think with a lot of my patients, I have to tell them, I wish that I could tell you how long you have. I wish I had even any control over that. I don't. And yet what I can tell you is I have control over what I say to you, which is I'm worried. And I would love for you to be able to spend your time, whatever it might be, doing the things that absolutely matter and mean something to you, whether that's wrapping up your businesses, whether that means, you know, setting something up for your kids, whether that means writing letters to your kids. And, you know, even for me, I have a living will. Uh, you know, I have I have designated what I would like, should it ever come to that that stage um, or when it comes to that stage, I should reframe and say. And and I've made some decisions about who gets what. I've written letters to my kids because those things are very, very important to do. Well, tell me, so what are some of the, the things that you are doing to change medicine and make it better for families? I, I've been a personal example and I, I can tell you that you are making things better for your patients and for families. You absolutely did in my family. And I just can't thank you enough, but tell me what, what your thoughts are on, on the medical world and how you're trying to make it a footprint to change some things. You know, Alex, I think that's a great question. It's, it's a complicated question because medicine is changing so dramatically. I think the first and foremost thing I'm trying to do is, is bring a humanism back to medicine. And so when I train my residents, my fellows and my medical students, I make sure that they know, be a human first. Don't be a doctor. Yeah. Know that the person sitting in front of you, you're giving them really tough news. Even in a wellness checkup, you may give them sort of tough news to hear like, okay, it's time now to go and get your screening mammography or your screening colonoscopy. And, and that can be terrifying for some people. Yeah. So be a human, hear that listen to the concerns, take some time to do that. If you need to bring your patients back in, bring them back in so you can have a thorough conversation with them. I think the other thing that I'm trying to do is how do we structurally create systems that make sense? And when I, when I say that, there are a lot of people who don't have access to medications, who can't afford medications. And so, you know, working with um, something at UMC called the 340B program that has discounted medications, doing advocacy and policy work to make sure patients and families living with serious illness have more equitable access to medications, to treatment modalities. It's why I came back to New Orleans to build palliative medicine. There was a huge shortage. And when I came back in 2015, I was one of three who was fellowship trained in my specialty. 
And so since 2015, it's been one program at a time at each hospital to build it, make sure that the systems are set up. People have emotional and psychosocial support as well as medical support for their symptoms. And I think those are the things that I'm hoping to achieve. Humanism and more equitable structures and access for patients and their families. Well, so how are you instilling or encouraging people to practice mindfulness in, in your practice? So I think you, so Carl, of course, had been taking Pilates from me and, and at the mindfulness practice, had we started therapy. But I remember when you were talking to us about mindfulness, he really took it seriously because you were really good about bringing in the emotionality around the time and using the time towards what made him happy. And, and I was just wondering, like, how do you go about um, mindfulness practice in your, in your practice? That's a great question. I would say that I have built a structure where people have time off to ensure that they get their wellness needs taken care of. If my clinicians are not well, they are not going to do well for their patients and families. I have a very open door policy. If you have an appointment in the middle of the day, we as a team are going to wrap ourselves around you, make sure we take care of your patients so you can go and take care of your own healthcare needs. And I think in medicine, we have forgotten that. That our, our, yeah, our fellow healthcare workers have families. They're going through grief as well. You know, many of them are dealing with death and dying in their own lives. I felt so proud of my team when, when my dad was dying and I had to be away for a month uh, while he was there that they took over. And, and they took my clinical responsibilities. And I subsequently have been able to pay that back in various ways to many members of my team. And so I think we've got to create those more humanistic structures that allow our healthcare clinicians to take care of themselves. And I think that's one of the problems we're having in medicine. Why you see so much turnover of nurses, of doctors, is because we're not building enough structures to encourage that, that clinicians have to take care of themselves so they're well enough to take care of others. The other things that I've done is we have a forum called Schwartz Rounds, which is a multidisciplinary team rounds that talks about the humanistic parts of caring for patients. So we meet as a group once quarterly to talk about various patient cases um, and various patients and, and circumstances that really impact us from a, a mental and psychosocial standpoint. And then the last thing is we have a quarterly death cafe because death hits us as clinicians so to be able to have that forum uh, to do that online virtually so that clinicians are speaking with other clinicians about their patients' deaths, their loved ones' deaths, and being able to process through it in group format. The other thing is, and, and I'll say this, no. I just think we have to allow people to find out what is best for them. You know, yoga is not best for everyone. Meditation is not best for everyone. Sometimes it's just simply having the time to go for a walk outside or to leave work an hour early, whatever that is, I think we've got to promote that and not take it offensively or become defensive about it. How do we promote that into a clinician's work-life balance and really any employee's work-life rhythm? I don't like the word balance for work-life. I think it's a rhythm. Some days your work gets prioritized, sometimes, some days your life gets prioritized, and how do we build a rhythm around that? No, it's so awesome. And I, I honestly, like from a, a business owner and a boss and a female and a person who worked in the medical industry, one of the big reasons I got out of the medical industry hospitals specifically was exactly what you're talking about. It just did not, I did not see a way to health, healthfully living in that environment. And I think 
that is the suffrage of medicine. And, and honestly, because I spent five years of my marriage um, in hospitals and hospital settings, I was, I, these be, people became my family and again, bore witness to the same thing. So it's really, really awesome. And when I created my companies, I really wanted to create an environment the same. Like if you needed to take time off to be healthy, like that does look very different. And mindfulness actually can be just being in the now, like breathing. It doesn't have to be, you know, this big, huge fitness class or this big endeavor to sit still and meditate perfectly for an hour. It's, it's really simple everyday practices that bring you back to your true self or like the calmer version of you or calm you down or help you regulate your nervous system. And there's lots of ways and that looks different for everybody. But I think it's really, really powerful that you practice from this perspective as a whole. I think it's a huge impact. I think physicians uh, have a very difficult time and are very, they don't have a lot of training on how to give this terrible, terrible news. And it's, it's a really hard burden. My current husband is um, an interventional radiologist and he sold his previous practice and he was giving um, end of life diagnoses every single day to metastatic disease. And his wife died of a brain aneurysm. And it was after that moment, he was like, I don't know how I used to be able to do this, but it became very, very challenging because he had had the personal experience with the loss of that nature. And then was like, I'm handing these like death sentences to people. And I, it, it just knocked him around emotionally from that point on. And, and I think it's really cool to think about you holding space for everyone to grieve together because how many things you see, like just in cancer journey, I have had to work through for the last mm, four years, all the traumatic things I witnessed with my loved one. Um, it can be quite violent to be involved in that from all perspectives, from the medical side to the, to the caregiving side, to the patient side, you know? And so it's, we don't talk about that ever, like how scary it actually is and how much it, human, when we put it on a human level, how much it impacts you every single day being with all of this hard and difficult things. Absolutely. I think, I, <clears throat> I think if we saying. don't catch up with it, if we don't talk about it, it is going to catch up with us in some form or the other. And I think right. we forget that as humans, how to hold space for emotions. Emotions are a part of life. And how do we become more mindful and more intentional about being receptive to emotions? Life is not this bouquet of roses that's going to look pretty. Just like a bouquet of roses, eventually they start to wilt. Mm -hmm. and, and you can either, you know, keep them around, dry them and, and make them what you would like to, or you discard them. And it's, it's similar. We have to be okay with there is going to be some level of, of downs in life and negativity and how to sit with that and what to do with it and how to shape it. One of my earliest experiences at my new program at University Medical Center, I had a physician, one of my colleagues, tell me that I needed to learn to be quiet and soft-spoken like other Indian doctors that she knew. Oh, wow. And in that moment, it was very hard to respond because it was this big gaping wound. As that wound has scabbed over and turned into a scar, I now have better responses for that and I can teach people how to respond to situations similar to that should they go through it. And I think that's the key is how do we train ourselves to hold space for emotions, to hold space to give bad news as clinicians and how to be present for one another because it's not going to be that everything is going to be good and dandy all the time. We are going to have to see negativity. We're going to have to see bad news and terrible news. We're going to have to see people die and how to best help ourselves through that and other people through that. 
Well, wow. So can we go back to that situation? There was a lot that happened in that. So talk to me a little bit more about that. So I do think there was, you just touched on about 5,000 different um, biases that happened there and expectations that were being placed on you. And I'm interested to know, like, A, being women are running medicine now. I mean, that's that that landscape is changing and diversity in in medicine needs to be there to represent all populations that because all populations are coming into the hospital. But I'm I'm interested to know, um, A, give me some context around that situation and B, how you handled it. That's that's there's a lot to there's a lot to untangle there. Yes. And it's been, uh, you know, six years, six and a half years of uh, working through that situation. And, you know, I, I had a colleague who, you know, she and I saw things very differently. And I think, you know, it was an emotional response to her feeling, um, you know, a certain way about how the program was developing. And I think, you know, she wanted to, you know, maybe in that moment hurt me, maybe not, you know, intentionally, maybe it was more implicit than than she realized, but did make that comment to me of, you need to learn to be quiet and soft-spoken like other Indian doctors. And of course, I come from an Indian background. My parents are Indian. I am first generation born and raised in the US. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Even though we are diversifying medicine from a gender standpoint, there's still a lot of work to be done in medicine to truly understand what biases are at play when we're working with each other as clinicians, and then also how we're then translating that to our patients and their families. And I think we have to have a more open culture of naming and really stating when biases are occurring, when discrimination or prejudice is occurring, so that we can figure out how best to educate and train people not to do it the second time around because mistakes are going to be happen. And we're going to have these episodes where we're going to need to call people out on things. And yet I think why not be preventative and call people into the work and show them that there are ways that we can avoid saying things that are going to hurt. And it's like the old saying, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will break my heart. And truly, I think if we're going to move towards mindfulness and, and humanism, we've got to be careful of the words we use. Language matters. And that Mm -hmm. same thing, when we're breaking bad news, we need to make sure that we attend to the language we're using. So it's okay to say dying. And it's okay to say, I'm sorry that this is happening to your loved one. And even when we make a racially or gender mishap in terms of what we say or do, going back and apologizing is actually critically important. It's a first step to be able to take. And so I think just the basics that our parents taught us, our mothers taught us, our fathers taught us, our aunties, uncles, whomever took care of us, uh, being able to go back to those basics of humanity. Right. And being able to be open enough to understand that we are all going to make mistakes and we all can own them, learn from them and try to apologize. Well, it's really powerful. And I hope that you know that your voice actually matters so much. And in my medical journey, um, man, your powerful voice was really actually the light I needed in a very, very dark time. And I think we need leaders like you in medicine because it's really scary. It's really scary to be an end of life. And we need people that are diverse, that are different, that are saying different things that are trying to make real change. And um, I'm super grateful that your voice and that your um, hands were guiding our, our end of life care because you really, really did make us have 
a lot, a lot of, a lot of better nights, a lot of better time, a lot of more, uh, more mindfulness was practiced by us because we were able to control symptomology. But I think not only have I seen you work it inside my home, it's really cool to see how, isn't it funny? Like these themes, these life, these life energies that you're working on are actually very applicable to not just death, not just medicine, but to life itself. It's just being a good human and, and taking care of each other and, and working on opening up a little bit to, to see other people's perceptions and understand that, yeah, we have biases on the inside that we need to work on. And yes, we need to use our voice more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Want to share with us. So maybe tell us a little bit like how exciting is it that you're working with the students now? So now you actually are creating culture and like, I know you've been creating culture for a long time. Your facility at UMC is humongous. I'm obsessed to hear about you working with um, uh, access for care because I can tell you, you know, obviously I come as a white privileged woman. Like I come from like maybe a lot of the boxes that get checked that are are lucky. And I know that I'm aware of my privilege. And But in medicine, we were young, 30 something, two children. Our jobs were compromised and money quickly became, it became very unaffordable very quickly to survive in that. And I, we had a lot of loving support, but I, I mean, it, I'm still paying off um, medical debt from, from that situation. And I just know how challenging it is. Talk to me a little bit about how you're helping, you know, students learn about being with patients, but also patients who are not able to afford proper medical care. That's, that's a great question. And I think, gosh, if I had all the answers, I'd probably be running, you know, Medicare or Medicaid, um, one of those agencies. And yet I think we have a lot of work to do within medicine to make the financial toxicity of uh, caring for people with serious illness less. I think one of the things that I've done is incorporate uh, discussions about this in my clinic, making sure that students, residents, and fellows know about resources. We have a Spirit of Charity Foundation at University Medical Center, and I'm hoping that we can expand this where we can pay for medications up to $500 a year for those patients who don't have any insurance. The other thing is expanding 340B access. So 340B centers have discounted medications from the distributors. And so those patients get medications at a much discounted rate. And I think the other thing is moving towards a more federal uh, policy level. I'm working with a couple of organizations to do this, to make medicines and to make medical care more affordable. And how do we also ensure that a lot of that is going back into the clinicians as well as the patients and families rather than, you know, into into this abyss of nowhere. And so those are the things that I'm doing. And I think the first step is just educating medical students, residents and fellows that there is a financial toxicity. So being careful of what you order, because there might be a copay associated with that and your patient and family will get a bill for it. Being sure to look at how much a a radiologic study will cost before you just sign a patient up for it. And then the other Mm -hmm. thing I will say is we need to expand access to care. We need to hopefully advocate for all states to expand Medicaid access so our most sort of um, disenfranchised and socioeconomically, you know, hit patients can afford care and have access to care. I think, Alex, we all come from places of privilege and power. It's how do we use that privilege and power for the betterment of society? Because we're seeing this in all aspects of society, not just healthcare. 
Everyone's yeah. a little bit more on edge. Everyone's a little bit ready to pounce on each other. And how do we just bring it back towards community and building up that community is going to be very important for the future. Totally. And I was thinking just like how powerful it is that, you know, that comment for you to not use your voice is it's literally like interesting because it's the exact opposite of what you're doing. So not only did you take that criticism, which I love and maybe turn it up a few notches, you know, I'm like, you should need to raise your volume because your volume is powerful. And I think change needs to happen in all these fronts. And it's, you know, if we could all treat people from a humanistic perspective and we could handle medicine from that perspective as well, not just for the patients, but also for the people inside of medicine, we might all be able to help each other a lot and be healthier, you know, and end of life care should be should be equal for all. And it is really, 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 really sad. I can't even imagine like thinking about, you know, just geriatric populations who, gosh, don't have anybody helping them. There's, there's just, it's really hard. It's, that's a hard field to go into in right. general. And there's, there's a lot of studies coming out now about loneliness in, in yeah. the aging population. And how do we address loneliness if we don't build community and we don't build structures to help take care of our senior citizens who have poured so much into society. And so I think we need to all be creative, right? We all need to be a part of the solution. It can't just be one person. It has to be caregivers. It has to be families. It has to be patients. And it has to be clinicians, administrators, all working together. We're all a community in this. It's so interesting too, to think about like the fact that there's all these plans out there. Sometimes when you would get with social workers, I would learn about all these resources that, you know, in the daily hustle of getting into your appointment and getting out of your appointment, you really didn't have time to access all these, these different resources in the city. And I was thinking like what you're doing to communicate to the doctors to make decisions based on the, you know, the whole life. So financial decisions and all the things that you can do to help the patient decrease all the stressors that are happening because it's already a stressful time. So it's really cool to think that using our communication to create a stronger community can actually impact healthcare just simply by taking the time to communicate that the resources are there with each other because we just, that, that can get missed really easily. And I think, you know, groups can do this internally within medicine. We can do this. So we have developed a complex care program where if we identify as a, a patient as uh, having complicated factors in their care, we put them on a list. Our social wor worker does a warm phone call every week. And if there are challenges, that the patient or family's experiencing, whether it's food insecurity, housing insecurity, we try to elevate those up and bring in other team members, whether it's the cancer center social worker, whether it's our nurse, whether it's me, to try to figure out what is best for the patient and how do we advocate for that. So I think we all can do this. We just need to be creative and not be confined to one uh, a one size fits all box and really sort of step outside of that box. I think you're amazing. I thought you were amazing from the first moment I met you and, you know, it's fun to like sit back in it with you and reaffirm that even in my craziest state where I don't know that I could have fully, like, I was so anxious and feeling so many things at the time of fragility of my life falling apart. Like you were always such a warm light to come to. And I just listening to you now, I'm like, yeah, it wasn't just me in a bad time and you being sweet. It was you really are just a gift to the medical community and to New Orleans in general. And I just, I'm really, really grateful. And I hope that everybody listening has learned a little bit about palliative medicine. Um, one of the things I'd like to say as a cancer wife, uh, caregiver, do not wait until you are at 
a place of literally being at the end of your life to ask for help in your symptomology because Dr. Maholtra is right down the street. If you're in the New Orleans area or if you're looking for resources in any community, palliation is a really, really powerful helper. It's a scary helper for the just take that first step, but it's actually symptom management and helps you live mindfully the end of your life for chronic diseases. And it's really powerful. So. Absolutely. And I'll give a shout out to my, my colleagues around the city yeah. because now we have built this and I have colleagues at Oxford Medical Center that are doing palliative medicine. We have a program at University Medical Center. I have colleagues at West Jeff, at Toro, and we're now going to have colleagues at East Jefferson doing this. So the, the New Orleans health community is coming together and, and we have amazing people in this field of palliative medicine to take care of all patients and families living with serious illness. What you get, you know, what the structure of the team is might be a little bit different. And yet each and every person in this field has a heart of gold and wants to help. And that's why they're in it. So um, please do seek that out. And whether you're living with a serious illness or whether you're a caregiver of someone with a serious illness. Okay. So my, my final question for you is tell me, I want to know, I guess, since you work in the field and people would say you work in the field of death, but I hope that we've demystified that today. You do not work in necessarily the field of death. Yes, there is death in your field often, but you actually work in the field of giving life to end of life people, people going through the end of life station. I want to know what your takeaway from working in this field has been and maybe something you could share with the world about um, what you've learned from the death and the dying and the, and the chronic illness. I would say that each moment is really a gift. I recently, about a, a year and a month ago, had a good friend who was our chief medical officer die suddenly, coming back from vacation with his family that had been postponed due to COVID. I would say that each moment of this life, though it may be hard, is a gift. And I try to utilize it in that way. I make mistakes like anybody else, we all do. And yet, can we keep moving forward knowing that, you know, no matter what our religious beliefs are, whether our, what our spiritual beliefs are, that for some reason we're here and, and there's work we, we can do. And that moment itself will end and there will be a new moment to pick it back up. And so from the thousands of patients, family members that I've had the privilege and honor of caring for, including some of my own family, that's my big lesson. And that's what I hope to radiate to the world and to the listeners on this podcast is use those moments and even sit through those, those bad moments and know that there's a moment waiting. And if you're meant to be here, you will and utilize that and, and make it your platform and keep doing good for, for all of humanity. Well, I could not have ended the show on a better note than that. You are so powerful. And so any of the listeners that have been following we will have shown in the show notes any way to reach Dr. Maholtra. She and her team and throughout the you know the New Orleans area have tons of resources. Um, if you're a listener who wants to give back, I'm certain she's got lots of venues for you to give back um, to those who are suffering end of life difficulties. There's so many things to handle there. So I just want to say thank you so much. And um, I hope you always know in your heart that the work you're doing is incredibly powerful I will never be able to thank you enough for all that you did for my family. Um, watching your loved one die is incredibly tough. And without you on that journey, I just don't know that I would have 
been able to grieve um, and heal and be sitting in this chair. So I really, really want to thank you and everyone who does work like you do. It's really, really important work. Thank so, you thanks. so much, Alex, for being an amazing person. And I owe you a pizza piadina in Carl's honor <gasps> at some point. Here's, I know. We got to do that. I laughed at the last time we were on. We were on the news together. I'm like, we've got to stop showing up in these ways. We're going to go get a glass of wine and have a piece of pizza together Absolutely. and be mindful. Thank you so much, Dr. Mulder. I hope you have an awesome day and I hope the world can hear your passion. You're just such a light. So keep so using much. that good voice of yours. It's very powerful and we're real happy you use it. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been the Wake the F Up podcast with Alex and Jamie, a podcast about normalizing and overcoming challenges like grief and fear. Be sure to check out our other episodes where our community of experts share tools and ideas to help you wake to the life inside of you. If you enjoyed this episode of Wake the F Up, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And join the Wake community by downloading our app. Just search for Wake Wellness in the Apple or Android App Store. And follow us on Instagram, at The Wake Wellness. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.